0: I think if there's one thing that we've understood as we have sing these different songs tonight, it's that God is far too good to us than what we deserve. I don't think we can sing enough about the love of God and sing enough about his faithfulness to us, and no matter how much we can wonder why, what keeps him faithful, what keeps him loving us, and though our minds may not be able to comprehend that here, we're still thankful that his word is true and never fails, and that we can bank on it always coming into fruition. Tonight we continue along our evening service series answering questions that every Christian should know and in one of the aspects of God's love for us and his compassion that he offers us something we're talking about here tonight is that believers can have assurance of their salvation. God has allowed us to have a no so salvation, and I've titled the message just that tonight, A no so Salvation. Tonight, we've gathered to answer the question, can I be sure of my salvation? Every Christian should know that they are saved, but that doesn't mean that every Christian will not still struggle with doubts. Doubts are not the worst thing in the world, but every Christian should and could have full confidence that he is saved without a shadow of a doubt. Someone has said that it is better to be a shouting Christian than a doubting Christian. We wouldn't be Christians who are walking around looking like question marks with our heads bent over. At least we shouldn't be. But we should be more like exclamation points with our heads held high, confident that we know we are saved, proud to know that God has saved us and that we can know that we are saved. Though doubts are not the worst thing in the world, Christians can have full assurance of their salvation without ever doubting that they are saved. And our passage this evening has some of the clearest teachings on the believer's assurance of his salvation. It shows us that assurance of salvation is not a new problem that people today are only struggling with, but a problem that Christians have been dealing with from the very moment that people began getting saved. This is obviously an incredibly important subject as the Bible has much to say about it. It is far more important than a person's denominational preference. It is far more important than a person's thought on the color of what the church carpet should be. It is far more important as to what the name on the church sign should say. We're talking about where you're going to spend eternity, not some temporal things that only have significance while you're here on earth. For something so important as the eternal destination of your soul, we ought to have absolute assurance as to where we will be and that we will be in heaven one day. If we ever expect to go through this life on earth with confidence, not swayed by everything that happens around us, not swayed by the things that we read or hear about in the news, but standing tall, knowing for sure that you are a child of God, destined for heaven, assurance of salvation is key. God has made it possible for us to have a no so salvation. And in 1 John chapter 5 is where I'd have you to turn with me tonight. 1 John chapter 5 is where we get probably one of the clearest explanations of assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. We're going to concentrate the majority of our time on verse 13 because it kind of encapsulates all of those 13 verses and the meaning and the importance of what it is to have assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 5. Follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 1 through 13. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He hath testified of His Son, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God Many Christians struggle with assurance of salvation because they believe doubts are a sign that they are not saved Is it possible for a person to be saved and doubt his salvation It most certainly is In fact That is why this passage was written, because there were Christians who were doubting their salvation. Believers were struggling with doubt long ago, as much as they're struggling with doubt today. And the Apostle John stated there in verse 13, which I just read, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. These things have I written unto you that are believers. He's writing to believers who are having doubts about their salvation, and he's telling them that God has made it possible for them to have full assurance of their salvation. There were probably others in that group that maybe thought they were saved and weren't, but would soon find out that they weren't. But here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that doubting your salvation doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved. In fact, this passage shows us that those who were doubting their salvation were indeed saved, which is true most likely of those today who often doubt their salvation. We only tend to doubt those things which we already believe. Doubt is to a person's spirit what pain is to the body. Pain doesn't mean that a person is dead. Pain just means that there is something wrong, that a part of the body is not functioning the way that it should function. And doubt is much in the same in that it doesn't mean that a person is not saved but that there is something wrong within the spirit of that person. A doubting Christian, as we all know, is not a productive Christian because the doubt in his life cripples him to the point where he becomes a shell of the person he once was. Some of the most diligent Christians I know are the ones who have the most assurance of their salvation. Doubts do not mean that a person is not saved, though. It just means that they are journeying on their way to heaven, riding in second class instead of in first class life is a struggle life is a struggle where they constantly feel like they are just limping their way through questions are always swirling in the minds of these folks as they constantly are are dealing with the changes of the world around them and as a result of the doubt fear and worry grip them because they convince themselves that there must be some merit to the doubt there must be a reason that all the doubts are swirling in their minds So they ride the roller coaster of what-ifs and all the worst-case scenarios and are always uneasy, always stressed, always unsure as to whether or not they're truly saved. Does this mean that they're not saved? Of course not. It just means that they don't have assurance of their salvation. Doubts are real, honestly more common than what we think. Even the most mature Christians go through periods where they doubt certain things and even their salvation. And it is usually because they have wandered from the Word of God and they've lost their bearings. Now, having said that, there are some people who never doubt that they're saved, and it's honestly because they're not truly saved at all. A lady once told an evangelist, she says I've been saved for 25 years, and I've never once doubted that I've been saved. The evangelist responded, I doubt you're even saved. That would be like a person saying, I've been married for 25 years, and me and my wife have never had an argument. Well, we will certainly have doubts. And doubts do not help us in our Christianity, but they don't mean that we are not saved. Doubt is just a fact of life. Quite frankly, doubt is a symptom of being human. This doesn't mean that you should just accept all the doubts as if they are confirmation that you are indeed saved and just live with the doubts. We should find out what's necessary to rid our lives of doubt doubt, and to live with the full assurance of our salvation. Trying to live your life full of doubt is like trying to drive a car while the parking brake is on. You may move, but you're only going to move at a real snail's pace. God wants us to have more than just a think-so salvation. He wants us to have a know-so salvation. That is why we're looking at 1 John here this evening. Because in this small book, the word know or known with regards to our salvation appears 38 times. You think there's a message that he's trying to convey here in these five chapters? I think so. God is showing us how we might know we have eternal life because he wants our lives here on earth not to be miserable as we're journeying our way to heaven, but to be successful, to be confident, for us to be stable, for us to have encouragement every single day as we know for sure that we're just a child of God and that we're also destined for heaven. And here in chapter 5, he starts with the basics. I want you to notice, first of all, that assurance of salvation starts with salvation. Now you probably think, well, that's obvious, right? It should be. Notice back in verse number 1 what we see. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Assurance starts with salvation. The picture we're given here is that of being born again. We see this phrase come up throughout Scripture. But being born again spiritually is much like being born physically. Jesus described this truth back in John chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus that night. Nicodemus came to him. He wanted to know by what authority Jesus was doing miracles, by whose authority he was teaching some profound truths. And so he comes to him by night, and Jesus told him that in order to understand the miracles, in order to understand the teachings, in order to understand who he really is, Jesus said he needed to be born again. And he mentioned some things regarding new birth in John chapter 3. First, he said that new birth begins with conception. Listen to the words of John chapter 3, verse number 5. Jesus answered, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water speaks of the word of God. Spirit speaks of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Spirit of God and the word of God come together in our womb of faith, if you want to look at it that way, not the room of faith, but the womb of faith. It's fresh on my mind because two weeks ago we had a baby, but... The womb of faith. That is where we see spiritual life conceived. It doesn't happen without our consent. We must come to God in faith. But it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God that bring about that life. And second, we see that character is produced. In John 3, verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In the flesh, we receive the nature of our earthly parents. And that which is born of the Spirit, it says, the Spirit of God in the Word of God create in us something that is supernatural, though, and we receive a new character with a new nature that is spiritual. So Christians are not just nice people, but Christians, as the Word of God describes us, are new creatures. A character is produced. Third, we see that there is a completion that takes place. A person is born only once. They're born only once, whether in the physical realm or the spiritual realm. You can't be spiritually born again twice. We may use the phrase born again to describe a person that is saved. But the reality is that they are born once spiritually when they are saved. And the moment they are saved, they are permanently becoming citizens of heaven. And there is a sense of completion that takes place. They're marked off at that moment of salvation as a child of God forever, sealed by the Holy Spirit... And never to return to that old nature because they are new creations. As we turn our attention back here to 1 John chapter 5, we see that there's a part that we have in this new birth. We may have no choice about our first birth. You have no say in how and when you are born physically. But we do have a choice about our spiritual birth. Believers are born by the water of the word and the spirit of God, the Bible says. But we provide the faith, that womb of faith, that allows us to, that God allows us to have. And notice again what it says here in 1 John 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth. So there is a believing on our part. There is faith on our part. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. This new birth takes place when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we are born of God. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us in, in very important verses. That we are saved entirely by the grace of God with no contribution and no works of our own. Those who often struggle with assurance of salvation, they lose sight of that truth. They lose sight of the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That it's by grace alone that we are saved. It may be a simple concept that God does everything to make salvation possible. And all we have to do is to believe on him as the son of God, the savior of the world, the one who's taken our sin and made it possible for us to have entrance into heaven. It's a simple concept, but we major in complicating the simple. The average person thinks that as long as he does the best that he can, and as long as he is as good as he can possibly be, that he will be in heaven one day. Go ask anyone on the street as to whether or not they think they're going to be in heaven one day. And the overwhelming answer will be yes, because I have done this and I've paid it forward and I've been a good person. I've tried to do this and tried to do what is right more than what I've tried to do, that which is wrong. And because of that, I believe I'll be in heaven one day. And the reason so many people think this way is because they think that one day every single one of us will stand before God in judgment where God will take all of us and everything that we've done over the course of our entire life here on earth and he'll take all of our good deeds and weigh them on a balance with our, with our bad deeds and he'll determine that whether the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds then by that we will allowed, be allowed entrance into heaven. But the Bible makes it crystal clear that it is not of ourselves. It is not of ourselves, but only by the grace of God that salvation shall ever be imparted to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you don't know these verses, if you haven't heard them before, memorize them, highlight them, underline them, do whatever you can to ingrain them into your mind. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If salvation were about our works, there would be all sorts of people that are boasting in heaven about how good they were to get there. There's not going to be a single person boasting in heaven because of what he did to get himself there. But every single person will be bowing at the feet of our Savior, thanking him, praising him for his grace alone that has brought them salvation. Some who are willing to acknowledge that our works will never be good enough will suggest that our salvation comes through a combined effort of God's grace and our works. So my, my works aren't good enough, but when I add my works in conjunction to the grace of God and put them together, then we have real motion. Then we're getting somewhere. And I've heard it explained in this rowboat illustration, and maybe you've heard of it, where you're in a rowboat, and there's two oars, and the one oar represents your works. And if you just work on the one oar of your works, you're going to go in just a circle. But if you just do the one oar of God's grace, again, you end up in a circle. But when you combine the two, the works and the grace, then you get to heaven. Right? Sounds logical. It makes sense, right? The only problem is we're not making it to heaven in a rowboat. God's grace is not about us adding anything to it. If you don't understand this truth, you will never have assurance of salvation. Grace is the wonderful characteristic of God's nature that makes him love sinners like us. God doesn't love us because we are good. God doesn't love us because one day we will be good. We didn't do anything to deserve God's love, and that is what makes his grace grace. Grace is unmerited love. It is unmerited favor. It is favor. It is love that we have not deserved. It is love that we have not earned. It is a gift that he didn't look down upon man and say, you know what? They've been really good. I'm going to grant them something to reward how good they have been. Here's my grace. That negates grace. Grace is completely undeserved. It is not faith that saves us. It is God's grace that saves us. Faith grabs hold of the grace that God has given. Grace is God's nailed, pierced hand of love reaching down from heaven seeking to save us. Our faith is a sin-stained hand placed in the hand of God, accepting that God is everything we need for our forgiveness and salvation. Because salvation is completely the working of God, only God gets the credit, only God can boast. I want you to notice, second, the marks of the believer. Assurance, first of all, starts with salvation, but secondly, I want you to notice the marks of the believer. The Apostle John here explains that the true believer will evidence certain traits, certain characteristics, certain marks in his life. First of all, that is obedience to the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. Turn back a couple chapters with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I want you to follow along as I read verses 3 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, as we see the first mark of the believer, which is obedience to the Word of God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. We can't claim to be saved if we're not keeping God's commandments. Now, let me just be clear, though a person isn't saved because they're keeping God's commandments. But a person will seek to keep God's commandments if he is saved. Now this brings up a serious problem because not one of us can dare say that since the day that we have been saved, we have always and perfectly kept and obeyed God's commandments. Right? Anyone perfect here? Didn't think so. Not one of us can make that claim. And what we need to understand is that the idea of keeping God's commandments does not mean that we are to be perfect or that we can be perfect here, but that God's commandments are what are guiding us from day to day. Are we going to be perfect in this life? No. Will we wander off course from time to time? Absolutely. But the true Christian, the true Christian will always return to his guide. And that is the word of God. From the very moment God saved me, there has been a desire in my life and my heart to please God and to keep his word. I will admit that I struggle daily to do that. I struggle daily with doing this. But the desire is always there. When I fall into sin, it is my knowledge of God. It is my knowledge of God's word that reminds me that I need to govern my life according to the word of God. This is what it means to abide in Christ. But I want you to notice what we're told in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 6 through 9. 1 John chapter 3 verses 6 through 9. Notice what it says here about abiding in Christ. 1 John 3, 6 through 9. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. All right, then we're all doomed, right? Because we're all sinners. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So if you had doubts of your salvation before, now you're probably thinking, well, I'm definitely not saved. Because the ability to sin is always present within me. Now let me offer an explanation on these verses before we get completely confused and leave here thinking that we're all unsaved. When these verses speak of sin, they aren't speaking of of one sin. They're talking about habitual sin, ongoing sin, continual practice of sin. The Apostle John is saying that the true believer does not make sin his constant practice. His constant lifestyle, his constant habit. It isn't saying that the true believer is not going to fall into sin at all from time to time, but the practice of sin will not be what rules and reigns in his life because he is a new creature. I was saved at four years old. And I can attest to the fact that I was doing everything I could to get into sin. I can get my mother on the phone and she can tell you just that. I often joke because at four years old, it's hard to get into too much trouble. But I often joke that when God saved me at four years old, I set aside the days of my tricycle gang and I made sure that I was on the right track living for him. Some might say that before you're saved, you are running into sin head on. Now you may be thinking, well, how much sin could a four-year-old really get into? Again, if you have children, you know the truth. There's plenty. There's plenty. But let me just say that beyond the obvious reasons, my parents were thrilled when I was saved. But from the day God saved me, I have been running from sin. That doesn't mean that I'm always successful because there are plenty of times where I fall into sin because of poor choices and foolish decisions. But my heart desires to live for God and to please him. And my heart is drawn back to the word every time I fall into sin. That wasn't true before I was saved. Therefore, what John is saying is that if you call yourself a Christian and you're not using the Bible as your guide, as your source, but you're living habitually a sinful life, you're lying to yourself because you're not truly a Christian. If you're constantly practicing sin with no conviction, with no contrition, and you have no desire to abandon that sin and to live for God and to please Him, your claims to be a Christian are false. Second, Love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. There should be the first mark, obedience to the word of God. The second mark of the Christian, there should be a love for the brethren. In 1 John 3, verse 14, it says this. We know that we have passed from death unto life. We know that we're saved, he says, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. When we are born again, we are born into the family of God, and we become brothers and sisters with all believers of all ages. Love is the nature of God. Therefore, it should be the characteristic of the children of God. If we love God and his love is in us, then we're going to love those who God loves. And this is one of the reasons why it is foolish to believe in Jesus, but to say no to the church. Now, I will admit that there are some that are harder to love than others and I won't point any fingers or name any names. You know who you are. But think about all of us in relation to God. Not one of us should ever be loved by God. Not one of us has done anything that warrants God showing us his love. And yet we sang how deep the Father's love for us. We should be impossible for God to love. Our sin is... Even just one sin is an eternal offense against a holy God. An eternal offense. Not just a one-day offense, or a one-week offense, or a one-year offense, and then he's going to get over it. An eternal offense. One sin. And yet God loves us. A church is not made up of perfect, lovable people. It is made up of sinners who acknowledge their sin. And I've come together to do something about it. And when you think about it, it's actually kind of silly. That the church is an organization where you have to admit that you've been bad in order to join. Therefore, we're all at different stages of our spiritual growth in the church. But we're all in this process of sanctification. We're all in this process where God is preparing us for heaven. And some of us are further along in the process than others. But those in the church are being guided by the word of God, even if they veer off course from time to time. They're in this journey together, side by side with their brothers and sisters in Christ. To love Jesus is to love the church. Love for the brethren. The third mark of the believer is confidence. Confidence. Back in 1 John chapter 5, notice what it says in verse number 10. 1 John 5, 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. It's not a matter of just knowing about Jesus, but believing in him. You can believe that an airplane can fly, but you're really going to trust it when you're on board and that plane takes off. Some people are trusting in a false hope for their salvation. Some people who claim to be saved because they walked down an aisle of a church when they were 10 years old. They're not living for God today. They'll even admit that they're not living for God today. But they've convinced themselves that they're saved because there was some past experience as a kid that they can pinpoint and say, well, that was the point in which God saved me. What I want to point out to you is that the Bible never talks about assurance of salvation coming as a result of a memory that you had walking down an aisle when you were a kid or any such thing. The language is very clear here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. It says, He that believeth on the Son of God, not he that believed at one point, but he that believeth. It's in the present tense. He that believes right now that Jesus is the Son of God is the believer, is the one who can have a present confidence, a present confidence in Christ, not a past experience that gives you confidence. When you make it all about a past event, you can really get yourself into trouble. Some will go as far as to say that if you cannot remember the specific time, the specific date, the specific place when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you probably aren't saved at all. You may not remember the time and the place when God saved you. But the point is that you're believing on Jesus Christ as the Son of God today. If you're believing in Jesus Christ, then you believed at some point in the past. Some true believers lack assurance of their salvation because the details around when they first trusted in Christ have become foggy. Did I say the right words back when I was four years old? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I really mean what I said? I mean, how much can a four-year-old really know and understand? What if I didn't do it right? What if I didn't say the right words? What if I really didn't mean what I said? What if I'm not really saved? And all these questions come up, and I'm sure we've all been there. We've asked ourselves different questions of this sort because some of the details can't be remembered specifically. Some people have no problem at all remembering the minutest detail, where they were, what color the carpet was in the room that they were, and who spoke to them, and who shared God's word to them, and what time of day it was. And all of these are so fresh on their minds But others don't remember it. You have others who have no problem remembering when Christ saved them because there was some climactic and dramatic event that led them to the Lord. Either way, the point is that not that we have to remember when we were saved, what specific words we prayed. The point is that we are now believing on Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now imagine, just for a second, imagine that we're going to take a trip and we're going to go to Massachusetts together. Just the nearest state. No significance. Now imagine you all are going to drive, and I'm going to fly. And we're going to meet at Logan Airport in Boston. You're in the car, I'm in the plane. Now, you and your journey driving on the road, you get on I-90 and you start heading east. And you get to a point on I-90, probably about 45 minutes as you're on I-90, where there's a massive sign on the right-hand side of the road that says, Massachusetts welcomes you. And you have a distinct moment in your memory when you know you crossed that border into Massachusetts. Now, I'm in the plane. I land at Logan Airport in Boston. I get off and I see the signs that says, Welcome to Logan Airport. I know I'm in Boston. I know I'm in Massachusetts, you all arrive, but you have a distinct memory of when you crossed that border from New York to Massachusetts. I, flying in a plane, have no clue when that took place. I couldn't pinpoint a time when we saw a sign, when I looked out the window in the plane and I saw the sign in the sky that says, Massachusetts welcomes you. But I know that I'm there because I'm there. Well, the same is true about our salvation. Many people don't remember the specific point in time that God saved them. They don't remember the specific prayer that they prayed when God saved them. They don't remember the specific words that they spoke when God saved them. But they know today that they believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Does that mean that they're not saved? Does it mean any less for me that I flew on an airplane as opposed to you driving in the car that you're in Boston and I'm not? No. Don't rely on past experiences. Now that begs the question, how can we know for sure if we're truly believing in Jesus right now, though? Well, first there is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse number 10 here in 1 John chapter 5. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. The witness in yourself refers to the Holy Spirit. The witness of the Spirit is not an emotional feeling. The witness of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer at the very moment of salvation. He is there with a quiet confidence, assuring us, sealing us, marking us off as a child of God forever. We belong to Christ. It is much more than just a good and warm feeling, but it is an inner awareness that those who are saved are indeed saved. A true believer with the witness of the Spirit is never at the mercy of an unbeliever who makes a good argument. The true believer will not waver regardless of what he is told, regardless of what he is hearing. He is not resting in his own intellect. He is not resting in the intellect of the person he is arguing with. He is resting in the witness of the Holy Spirit who lives within him. And the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. So there's the witness of the Spirit, but second, there is the witness of the Word of God. Notice verses 11 through 13 again here in 1 John chapter 5. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. God has written the Bible. God has given us his word, so that we might know we have eternal life. One of my favorite verses which describes this truth so clearly is John chapter 5 and verse number 24. I want you to listen to what Jesus declares there. John five twenty-four: Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John five twenty-four. Highlight that, memorize that. Very important verse. This is one of the clearest teachings regarding the witness of the Bible. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, what is the word of God? The Bible. And believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. There is the witness of the Bible. The witness of the Spirit and the witness of the Bible give us absolute confidence and assurance of our salvation. If we're saved and we have doubts, don't think that the answer to removing that doubt is to recall that past experience. All that will do is to lead to more doubt, especially if your memory is fading over the years. And I'm not even that old, my memory's fading. Every passage on salvation and assurance of salvation in the Bible have to do with the present tense. Not, if you can remember what you said when you were four years old, if you can remember what you prayed when you are four years old, then you can know you have eternal life. No, these things have I written unto you that believe, present tense, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Are you believing now that Jesus is your Savior? Are you believing now that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Are you believing now that Jesus paid the price for all of your sin upon the cross? Are you believing now that Jesus Christ is the one and the only way to heaven? If you're believing in Jesus now, there will be definite marks of your salvation, proving that it is genuine. There will be a desire for you to obey the word of God. There will be a love that you demonstrate for the fellow brothers and sisters. There will be confidence in your life witnessed by the Holy Spirit and the word of God that you belong to God. If you're struggling with doubt, it's generally because there is unconfessed sin in your life. Doubt is a symptom of those who are not obeying the word of God, those who have not confessed sin to God. Those who are not walking in fellowship with God. Go back and read 1 John chapter 1. You'll see all about that. There is nothing more damaging to a Christian's confidence than unconfessed and unrepented sin in their life. Deal with that sin the way God has instructed us in 1 John chapter 1. Confess it all to him and do it right away. And see if the confidence of your salvation does not quickly return. God desires for us to have confidence not just when we get to heaven, but in this life today. And he has done all that is required for every single true believer to have that no so salvation. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we're thankful to have this great reminder of your word, Lord. And I know we just really touched on all that can be mentioned regarding assurance of our salvation. But Lord, the things that we've spoken of here tonight, I pray, Lord, that they have triggered a few things in our minds to understand, Lord, that if there are doubts, that it may not be because we're not saved. It may just be, Lord, because we are relying on our assurance based on past events. I pray that we'd understand, Lord, what your word has told us with regards to the reality of doubts, but also where our assurance really comes from. May we look to you, Lord, and may we find that all of our confidence, all the stability that we need in life is found in your word and found in the witness of the Holy Spirit. May we rest and lean upon Him every single day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to.